History of Northern Europe to the Beginning of the Fourteenth Century by Hans Brutz from A History of All Nations from the Earliest Times Volume 9 The Age of Feudalism and Theocracy Translated under the supervision of John Henry Wright This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recorded by Piotr Natter the civilization of the age of charlemagne was already decaying when the north german or scandinavian tribes first entered upon history these were split up into as many political groups as there were tribes fitted by their surroundings for a seafaring life the norman and danish vikings had for generations been the terror of the frankish kingdom they had founded prosperous states on both sides of the english channel and in southern italy they had likewise settled in byzantium and at the beginning of the crusades taken an active part in the affairs of asia minor they had tenaciously preserved certain salient features but had otherwise adapted themselves with surprising skill to their new surroundings and thus developed a new and peculiar national type which acted as a stimulus on their neighbors the introduction of christianity among the northern germans marks a decisive stage in their development its beginnings are coupled with a name of ansgar whom louis the pious sent out as a missionary the final triumph of the mission is due to archbishopric of hamburg bremen as in other countries the change of faith in scandinavia brought about disturbing social and political changes here christianization led to the extinction of the ancient popular freedom and of the independent life of the tribes the old folk freedom met with a heavy blow when the old tribal kingships disappeared in the ninth and tenth centuries and were replaced by vast territorial kingdoms a system of social orders similar to the romano-german feudal system took its place in many cases but everywhere the kingship claimed increased power which was gradually recognized many emigrated who found the ecclesiastical and political innovations unbearable this led to remarkable settlement in iceland in which the primeval germanic conceptions of law state morals language poetry and legend were to lead such a wonderful second life far into historic times the scandinavian invasion of the west frankish kingdom and of england did not come to an end until the tenth century about the time of henry i of germany one of his contemporaries was harold harfagr fair-haired who died in nine hundred and thirty-three after the defeat of the provincial princes he united norway under his sway another contemporary of henry was gorm the old died in nine hundred and thirty-six who first gave the danes political union and became so dangerous a neighbor to the german king that the latter's victory over him was considered particularly glorious it took the royal house of england longer to overthrow the under kings in sweden eric the victorious succeeded in the main in doing so in the second half of the tenth century in this period christianity was established in scandinavia but was more than once forced back by the heathen reaction intermittent conflicts broke out between the closely related nations in these fierce intestinal wars the strength of paganism gradually broke down and decided the victory of christianity which opened scandinavia to the influence of the germano romance civilization of the european west the reign of canute the great ten fourteen to ten thirty five 
who ruled over Denmark, Norway, and England, marks a great stage in the development of the North. But the king could not ensure the undivided continuance of his vast kingdom after his death. However, after he had definitely won Denmark for Christianity, the victory of that religion in the other Scandinavian kingdoms was only a question of time. Not that it immediately proved strong enough to curb the uncontrollable native savageness of the royal house. In short, at first it effected only a mixture of unreconciled old and new institutions. The history of Denmark especially bears witness to this fact. After manifold struggles during which Norway again became independent, Canute's nephew, Svein Estridsson, had succeeded to the throne of Denmark. He organized the Danish church by erecting and making provision for a native bishopric. Religiously inclined, he lacked his uncle's military virtues. His attempt to win back England proved a failure, nor could he shake off his feudal dependence on Germany. The country reaped little advantage from the rule of Svein's five sons. That of the youngest, Niels, was particularly disastrous to the royal house, because his son Magnus brought on a family feud by murdering his cousin Canute Lavard. The latter was the second son of the deceased king, Erik Eingott. His successful administration of Schleswig, and his close alliance with the German king Lothar, who had bestowed the land of the Vents on Canute as a fief, and crowned him king of the Abodriti, aroused the mistrust of his weak uncle Niels. His son Magnus killed Canute Lavard on Christmas, 1131. Eric, the brother of the slain man, took up arms to avenge his death. In vain King Niels besought Lothar to protect him, although he rendered homage to the German king and paid him tribute. After an enforced absence, Eric appeared in Scania in 1134 and won a decisive victory. Footnote. Scania is the old name for the southern extremity of the present Sweden. It was usually a part of Denmark until 1658. Magnus fell, and Niels was afterwards slain by the enraged people of Schleswig. Erik Emund's reign, 1134-1137, was no less disastrous than his predecessors. He was also murdered three years after his accession. A furious dynastic conflict and civil war ensued. Finally, Eric III de Lam, 1137-1147, triumphed over the rival claimants of the crown. Against his son Svein, 1147-1157, arose the pretender Canute, the son of Magnus. The ensuing civil war threatened to split up Denmark into several small states. Conrad III of Germany was too weak to interfere. But Saxony, under the Welf Henry the Lion, returned to its national task of Christianizing and Germanizing the Vent provinces. In this, Henry met such success that Denmark exchanged the protection of the German king for that of the Saxon duke. Thus, Denmark became more of a Saxon than a German province. At the Diet of Meresburg, in May 1152, both pretenders appeared before King Frederick I. Canute came with his protector Henry the Lion, and Svein with Archbishop Hardwig of Bremen. The German king decided in favor of Svein, who received Denmark as a German fief. In his turn, Svein had to invest Canute with Zealand. Young Valdemar, the son of Canute Lavard, received an independent principality in southern Jutland. 
but the animosity engendered by the late bloody feuds soon set this arrangement at naught. The opposition was strongest against Spain. He could not ward off the Slavonic pirates, and finally preferred to buy the protection of the Duke of Saxony. This disgrace was made more insufferable by the king's wastefulness. As a result, Canute and Valdemar were proclaimed kings in Jutland. When Svein attacked them, his soldiers deserted him, and he had to flee to Germany. With the aid of the Vents and the Saxon duke, he succeeded in having his lands partly restored to him. According to agreement, Svein was to retain Scania, but Canute was to rule in Zealand and Valdemar on the mainland. At a festival celebrated in Roskilde, in honour of the reconciliation, Svein took his two cousins by surprise. Canute was killed, but Valdemar escaped with his wounds to his Jutish followers. They rose to support their king. On his pursuing Valdemar, Svein was defeated in 1157 and killed in flight. Thus the Twenty Years' War ended, and King Valdemar I, 1157-1182, found recognition everywhere. Valdemar was a prince of ambitious spirit, great insight and ability. He recognized the needs of his people, and was fortunate in the choice of his means to satisfy them. His amiable personality made King Valdemar beloved, and enabled him during his long reign to restore his kingdom. As he was not strong enough to beat off the Vends, he had to accept Henry the Lion as his feudal lord. He fought as his vassal against them, only to leave almost all the conquests to the Saxon. When Valdemar conquered Rügen alone in 1168, the duke claimed half the booty, and went so far as to expose the Danish coasts to the Vends in order to enforce his claim. It was not until Henry had become embroiled with the German emperor that Valdemar could make his land more independent and let the feudal tie fall. He found a faithful helpmate in the politic and soldierly bishop Absalon of Roskilde, the later archbishop of Lund. From the ecclesiastical side he furthered Danish independence, although his repressive economic measures caused a peasant revolt. It was Valdemar's policy to await developments in the struggle between Henry the Lion and Frederick I. When he saw that Saxon was definitely crushed, he espoused the cause of the emperor and assisted him at the siege of Lübeck. When Valdemar I died, in 1182, he left Denmark much more powerful than he had found it. The succession of his son, Canute the Sixth, 1182-1202, however, met with some popular opposition. But the clergy and nobility succeeded in beating it down. The old democratic forms of government began to fall into abeyance, and Denmark developed into a hereditary monarchy limited by the estates. Canute no longer recognized the feudal suzerainty of Germany. To maintain his independent position, the Danish king constantly opposed the Hohenstaufens. An instance is his joining the League of the German Princes against Henry VI to avenge the murder of the Bishop of Liège. He likewise eventually favoured the intrigues of the Welfs for their restoration. Canute subjugated Pomerania, which Henry the Lion had failed to do in 1184 and 1185. The king could henceforth adopt the style of a king of the Danes and the Vents. During the contest for the throne which followed the death of Henry VI in Germany, he thought ultimately to get possession of the German districts on the right bank of the Elbe. 
In 1200 the Danish king made Adolphus III of Schauenberg, the Count of Holstein, surrender Dietmarschen and the strong fortress of Rendsburg. Taking advantage of the internal conflicts of the nobility of Holstein, the Danes broke into the land in the autumn of 1201 and conquered it. Adolphus was finally captured and imprisoned in a fortress on Zealand. Germany thus lost her Transalban lands, and as the counts of Mecklenburg joined Canute, the life-work of Henry the Lion was annihilated. The future of the Slavonic countries lay in the hands of the Danes, from whom the rich lands on the Baltic could now scarcely escape. The execution of these plans of conquest fell to Valdemar, a brother of the king, as he had died without leaving a son. Valdemar II, 1202-1241, later called the Victorious, was not only king of the Danes and Slavs. To his other titles he added that of Lord of Nordalbingia, for Count Adolphus III finally ransomed himself by the surrender of Holstein and the installation of a Danish garrison in Lauenburg. The German War of Succession secured Valdemar in his dominions for some years, but the rise of the unified kingdom under Otto IV, after Philip's assassination, filled the Danish king with anxiety about the maintenance of the Transalban lands. By a skilful stroke of diplomacy he went over to Otto, who, unmindful of national interests, recognized the Danish right to these lands and made them independent of the empire. The Baltic seemed about to become a Danish sea. Valdemar's crusade against the Estonians in 1219 resulted in the conquest of an important post on the east of the Baltic. To be sure, the king's national schemes of conquest did not achieve such lasting results as the order of the Brothers of the Sword were then winning in Livonia and the neighboring provinces, or the order of Teutonic Knights achieved later in heathen Russia. It was a blessing for the German kingdom, in its intestinal disorders, that the flower of German chivalry could take into its hands the propagation of Christianity and civilization in these districts. The German knights and nobility also called a halt on the Danish power, and rescued the Elbelands and Pomerania, which the crown itself had forfeited. It was Count Henry of Schwerin, however, who took the final step. He captured the Danish king by stratagem, and recovered his land. Then, together with the other East German princes and counts, he gained a decisive victory over the Danish king at Bornhuvet. Holstein, too, now returned to Count Adolphus IV of Schauenburg, and the German ports, above all Hamburg and Bremen, rose to new prosperity. For centuries the German element predominated in the Baltic provinces. This predominance was completely assured by the decay of the Danish power. Valdemar II, who had spent his last years in enacting beneficial legislation, died in very old age in 1241. His second son, Eric, called Plaupenny, 1241-1250, succeeded. His oppression enraged the peasants and clergy, especially as his forced subsidies did not lead to victory. Consequently, his position soon became dangerous, on his falling out with his brother Abel. The latter had received Schleswig from his father, and his father-in-law, Adolphus IV of Schauenberg, conferred the regency in Holstein on him at his retirement to a monastery. He strenuously defended the four sons of Adolphus against the claims of the Danish king. At a meeting in Rendsburg, Abel had his brother seized and put on shipboard. Here Valdemar was murdered. 
A few months later Abel celebrated his coronation in Roskilde, on which occasion representatives from Danish cities first appeared with the clergy and nobility. Abel sought to strengthen his throne by a popular government. Consequently, his short reign, 1250 to 1252, was beneficial to a constitution which was soon to be tested. For after Abel had been slain in a battle with the Frisians, and his son had been made captive by the Archbishop of Cologne on his return from his studies at Paris, the Danish magnates chose the late king's brother, Christopher, as his successor. His reign, 1252 to 1259, was very turbulent on account of his fierce conflict with the clergy. During its course, the Archbishop of Lund excommunicated the king and laid the interdict on Denmark. The ensuing ecclesiastical distress drove the hard-pressed peasants to armed revolt. In the midst of the terrors of a peasant's war, the king suddenly died in 1259. It was rumoured that a fanatical priest had administered poison to him in the Eucharist. Nevertheless, the regent Margaret, his mother, secured the succession to her minor son. The struggle with the episcopate was concluded only by the death of the Archbishop of Lund in 1274. Notwithstanding, the crown had forfeited its influence over the church, which rose to proud independence with the nobility. In the ensuing war with his brother Eric, who claimed Schleswig by right of inheritance, the king and his mother were long held captive by the rebels. They stripped the king more and more of his rights and domains, while his chief officials gradually formed an almost independent council. When King Eric, in November 1285, was assassinated, his minor son, Eric Menvet, was allowed to succeed, but the latter, in turn, was soon subjected to humiliation by the unhappy outcome of a war to which the escaped murderers of his father had incited the Norwegian king. The king's struggle with John Grant, Archbishop of Lund, was still more disastrous. After having escaped from prison, the archbishop invoked the aid of Boniface VIII. The pope decided against the king. On Eric's refusal to submit to the Pope's arbitration, Boniface excommunicated him until he finally submitted. A Norwegian war, which Eric had undertaken in behalf of the expelled Swedish king, Birger II, ended in disgrace, and only led to further alienation of the crown domain and to oppressive taxation. The king's attempt to reduce the German Baltic provinces also proved a failure. Accordingly, when the king died in 1319, he left his office stripped of esteem and power. As he had left no sons, the feudal nobility found convenient means for extending their influence in the coming election. To secure their innovations, they had to promise the cities and peasants a part of the spoils wrung from the crown. For Eric's brother, Christopher II, 1320-1326, had to buy his election with a formal capitulation which recognized as legal the existing narrow limitations of the royal office. Every succeeding king was to be bound to confirm them. This charter of January 2, 1320, not only confirmed to the clergy its rights and liberties, but also made the levying of tithes dependent on its consent, and established its exemption from temporal jurisdiction. The charter freed the nobility from the duty of foreign military service and confirmed all its rights as against its subjects and vassals. The king's right to make war was to be conditional on the consent of the clergy and nobility. 
The enfeoffment of Germans and their admittance into the Royal Council were prohibited, as well as the granting of church offices to foreigners. The concessions which the Charter made to the burghers and peasants were naturally much more meagre. It promised the former undisturbed trade and security from illegal dues. The latter got protection from the oppression of royal bailiffs and the abrogation of unjust services. In general, this Danish Magna Carta contained the guarantee of justice on the basis of the law of the land. To secure this, an appeal was to lay from the king's court to the Diet as the highest court. Henceforth, new laws were to be issued only with the consent of the prelates and nobles in Parliament assembled. Thus the feudal reaction made itself felt even in the north, and reduced the royal office to dependence. The two other Scandinavian countries play a less important part in the history of the time. Much later than in Denmark, the monarchical principle triumphed over the remains of the primeval German organization. The descendants of Harald Harfagr had many conflicts for the crown of Norway. Repeatedly several ruled the whole kingdom conjointly, or divided it according to the old racial divisions. The result was a constant diminution of the royal right, which gave the clergy especially a disproportionate predominance. After King Magnus, at the end of the twelfth century, had fixed by law that the prelates should decide which of the royal princes should ascend the throne, two parties arose. The clergy and their adherents formed the so-called baglers, that is, crozier-bearers. The national party, on the other hand, took the name of birchlegs, for almost a century these parties rent the country with their antagonism. When the clergy lost its predominance in the second half of the thirteenth century, order finally returned. This enabled royalty to rise again from the days of King Hakon V, the old, 1217 to 1263, who added Greenland and Iceland to his domains. At the same time, the German Hanseatic merchants settled in Bergen, which became the foremost northern trading center. Hakon's son, Magnus VI, 1263-1280, to 1280, secured the restored order by introducing the principle of primogeniture in the succession. Still, the prelates formed a sort of state within a state, because they were not only exempt from all temporal jurisdiction and military duties, but also had the exclusive appointment of their bishops and other officers. The son of Magnus, Eric, 1281-1299, first put an end to this evil. He forced the clergy to pay him homage and to render their share of military duties. Eric was followed by his son Hakon VI, 1299-1319, who was the last of the house of Harald Harfagr. By opening the succession to the female line, with the consent of the Diet, he paved the way for the future union of Norway and Sweden. The history of Sweden, to the close of the 13th century, consists of a long line of civil conflicts, feudal struggles, and throne revolutions. Here, too, the primary result was the irksome predominance of the warlike nobility, which curtailed the royal power, as well as the old freedom of the lower classes. Even the mighty Jarl, Erl Birger, who had virtually ruled Sweden for his brother-in-law, Erik Eriksson, and after the king's death without issue, in 1250, had had his own eldest son Valdemar, 1251-1275, proclaimed king, could not establish lasting peace. 
Birger died in 1266, after he had laid the foundation of the later Stockholm, and opened up Swedish trade by the admission of the German Hanseatic League into Sweden. Thereupon the younger brothers of Valdemar rose against him, and drove him to Norway in 1275. While trying to regain his kingdom, the Swedish king fell into the hands of his brothers, who made away with him. King Magnus, 1275-1290, to held his own against the noble insurgents only by force and treachery. He sought to curb them through severe laws, and particularly to shield the peasants from them. With this in view, he tried to raise the position and influence of the church. When he died, he appointed the marshal Torkel Knudson regent for his minor son Birger. After Birger II, 1290-1317, had begun to rule, Torkel remained the most influential man about the throne. Sweden now advanced rapidly. Finland was conquered and Christianized. But the taxes which these wars necessitated weighted heavily on the people. The younger brothers of the king used the prevalent discontent to raise a rebellion which brought about the dismissal of the all-powerful marshal. Soon after, the king was taken by treachery, but released at the request of his brother-in-law, King Erik Menvet of Denmark. The conflict soon broke out anew, and Birger II had to concede the independent rule of certain districts to his brother, and be content with the royal title. But he planned revenge. Instigated by his Danish queen, he surprised Erik and Valdemar in 1317, and let them starve to death in prison. This deed caused a general uprising, which drove Birger to Denmark. His accomplices were killed by their enemies, who did not spare the king's son. A diet, consisting in part of representatives from the cities and peasantry, then made Magnus the three-year-old nephew of Birger king. Through his mother he was a grandson of Hakon of Norway, which gave him hereditary claims to that kingdom. Since the feudal dependence of Denmark on Germany had fallen into abeyance, the influence of German civilization was brought to bear on the northern kingdoms more and more by the north German seaports. Their confederation, which had reached far into the interior, was called the Hanseatic League. Hamburg and Lübeck had set the example in 1241 by making an alliance to protect trade and commerce in the district between the Elbe and Trave. The origin of the Hanseatic League, however, is shrouded in darkness. It seems that several city confederacies, bound together by community of foreign trade, gradually coalesced into one great league. Its name, Hansa, did not come into use until the middle of the 14th century. Originally, this name belonged only to the Cologne merchants, who, under Henry III, established a factory, or guildhall, in London. For a time, Cologne retained its leading position, and its allied Westphalian cities, together with the Prussian ones, formed a separate group of the Hanseatic League. Lübeck formed a second group, at the head of the Vendish and Pomeranian cities. Visby, at the head of the cities of Livonia, formed the last one. But Lübeck surpassed all the other cities of the League. It was the chief market of the Baltic coast as early as the 13th century, for all the interior towns were dependent on it. This found expression in the almost universal acceptance of the Lübeck Code of Laws. Even the Prussian city of Kulm adopted this code in a modified form, which spread to the extreme northeast. The unity of legal conceptions rising therefrom contributed largely to strengthen the community of the cities based on their economic life. 
This bound especially Rostock, Wismar, Stralsund and Greifswald, Stettin, Anklam, Stargard, Demin and Kolberg to Lübeck. The tie spread later to Danzig, Dirschau, Elbing, Braunsberg, Königsberg, Memel and other towns. Visby, on the island of Gotland, was at this time the most important centre of the Baltic trade. As early as 1225, long before the origin of the Hanseatic League, a corporation of German merchants existed there. It was the oldest of its kind, and was later called the Gotlandic Corporation. German merchants had also settled in Riga, the chief town of Livonia. Thence they had penetrated the interior of Russia, where the Gotlandic Corporation had an important staple at Peterhof but toward the close of the thirteenth century this body gradually lost its leading position in that quarter this fell to the rising power of lubeck which stepped to the head of the hanseatic league it now exercised fully the rights and duties of its position it called the meetings or hanse days of the league and directed their proceedings likewise it carried on correspondence and negotiations in the name of the league with foreign powers these meetings regulated all the internal affairs of the hanseatic league such as commerce and also had legislative functions short records of the proceedings were kept which grew in fullness with the increased importance of the body they were later known as the hansaretsesse and are a precious source of the history of this remarkable union which alone made the german name respected abroad during the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries the Scandinavian countries especially, which were not as yet in a position to utilize their rich resources through their own energy, finally fell into economic and political dependence on the militant German merchants. In Sweden, into which the Jarl Birger first admitted the Hanseatic League, Stockholm soon became its chief centre. On the coasts of Scania its merchants had profitable fisheries. In Denmark, the German merchants first settled in Copenhagen, in the street which still bears their name. They also had stores in various neighboring places. In Norway, the center of the league was at Bergen. At first, Cologne had had a large part of the English trade, but later on, the towns on the North Sea, and especially Hamburg and Bremen, competed with it. Hamburg finally surpassed them all in london the stores and dwellings of the salesmen of the league were called the steel yard and lay between the thumbs and thumbs street these merchants who had to be unmarried and fell into groups of masters and apprentices lived according to a monastic rule they enjoyed the special favour of the english kings and granted them all sorts of privileges and liberties asking in return only for their support in case of an attack on london the Hanseatic League had similar stations in Ipswich, Yarmouth, Norwich, Lynn, Boston, Hull, and York. They also took root in Ireland and Scotland. After Lübeck came to represent the League, the German Baltic towns took a more active part in the English trade. Thus the leading role, first of Cologne and then of Hamburg, was transferred more and more to Lübeck. The connection of the League with the Netherlands, and especially Flanders, was no less profitable. Here again Cologne had at first had the greatest share, but in the second half of the 13th century Hamburg and Lübeck became strong competitors here also. The chief Hanseatic settlement in Flanders was Bruges, which continued for some time to be the most important European trading centre north of the Alps. The League had also stores in Hent, Antwerp, Dinan, Ypres and Dam. 
The Baltic and North Seas were really German seas at the time. Not only Russia, but also Scandinavia and England were in commercial and maritime dependence on the German merchant. That such a power combination as the Hanseatic League could arise throws a peculiar light on the condition of the declining empire. It led to relations which are quite impossible in a well-organized state. It was nothing unusual for imperial cities to make independent treaties with foreign powers, and the princes of the empire did the same. Now some towns also belonged to the Hanseatic League, which were subject to a prince, and consequently ought to have been represented by him. But these towns acted as independently as their fellows. Nothing but conflict could ensue between the towns and their lords, and widen the old gulf between the citizens and the feudal powers. This appeared nowhere more strikingly than in the state which the Teutonic Order had founded in Prussia. This religious military order completed the benefits conferred on the northeast of Europe by the Hanseatic League. The Teutonic Order was founded at a time when the crusading spirit was at its height in Germany. It had entered the competition too late to achieve the success of the Knights Templar or those of St. John in Palestine, but it was this fact which enabled it to preserve its original spirit and fulfil its double mission. For this order was characterized still more than the other military ones by that strange amalgamation of chivalry and monasticism which determined its direction and success. Thanks to this quality, and to its far-seeing grandmasters, this order succeeded in founding an epoch-making civic organism. The original dependence of the Teutonic Knights on the Hospitallers soon fell into abeyance. Confirmed by Pope Innocent III in 1199, the order first sought to gain a foothold in the Holy Land. Through grants, exchange, and sale, it acquired considerable lands in the neighborhoods of Beirut, Toron, and Acre. To the northeast of the last-named city, it erected among the hills its strongly fortified chief seat, Montfort, or Starkenburg. The difficulties of its early conditions explain the diligence of its administration, which afterwards enabled the order to win its successes. But its future did not lie in the east, even if it were possible to hold up the tottering Christian rule against the onslaught of the infidel. The third grandmaster of the Teutonic order, Hermann von Salza, 1211-1235, the friend and counsellor of Emperor Frederick II, recognized this. Therefore he sought another scene, where the knights might devote themselves to the crusade against the heathen. Just about this time, Konrad, Duke of Mazovia in Poland, sought aid against the heathen Prussians. For the attempts of the Cistercian monastery of Oliva to convert the warlike race beyond the Vistula had had no lasting results. As a reward, the duke offered the order the district around Kulm, generally called Kulmland. Its conquests were to be ruled solely by the order. After an examination of Kulmland, Hermann von Salza accepted the duke's proposal and had the emperor and pope solemnly ratify the grant. Then he sent a detachment of knights in 1228, under his representative Hermann Balk, to the lands of the Vistula. From the castle of Vogelsand, on its left bank, they began their skirmishes. Not until 1232 did they settle on the right, or Prussian, bank of the Vistula. On its heights, they erected their first fortress, Toron, the present Thorn. Many other names of places familiar to the order in Palestine were in like manner given to Prussian towns. 
In 1234 the reinforced knights won a great victory over the Prussians near the river Zorge. Soon many crusaders who preferred to fight nearer home joined the settlement of the order. They were generally used for greater invasions, during which the invaders hastily built strongholds. From these as a centre, the garrisons remaining gradually subjugated their neighbours. Thus the conquest of Pomezania was directed from Marienwerder. Following the course of the Vistula, the knights invaded Pogezania, and there built the chief stronghold of the order, Elbing, from which the neighbouring Frischeshaf offered convenient communication with the east. On its coast arose the mighty towering castle of Balga, from which southern Ermland was brought under the yoke of the Teutonic order. The basis for its later conquest of Samland was Königsberg, which was built above the valley of the Pregel. In the extreme northeast, near the outlet of the Kurischeshaf into the Baltic, the order erected Memel as a defence against the wild hordes of the robbing Samites. Starting from Kulmland, the Teutonic order conquered Pomezania, Pogezania, and Ermland in 1239. Its progress in the other districts seemed already to make the victory of the order sure when, in 1242, the first general revolt of the Prussians broke out. The fact that also its western neighbour, Svantopluk of Pomeren, joined the insurgents and threatened to cut off its communication with Germany, at times put the order in a critical position. Only a tedious war reduced the six revolted provinces to subjection again. Christianity made more rapid progress through the erection of bishoprics for Kulmland, Pomezania, Ermland and Samland. The capital of the order was the castle of Elbing, where a landmaster dwelt as representative of the grandmaster who lived in Palestine. Continual conflicts went hand in hand with the slow colonization of the country through German immigrants. From the middle of the 13th century they were directed chiefly against the Samites and their southern neighbours the Lithuanians. The latter threatened the very foundations of the order once more. The victory of the Lithuanian prince Mindvok in the summer of 1261 was the signal of a new general uprising of the Prussians. The unanimity and suddenness of the revolt caused the state of the order to be overrun for the moment. It had to give up all its provinces with the exception of its most important fortresses. As its forces were insufficient to crush the uprising, Germany sent a crusading army for its support. The order found it the harder to overthrow the rebels because Mestvin, the Duke of Pomerania, made common cause with them. The German knights had fought for their existence almost a decade when the victories of the marshal of the order, Konrad von Tierberg, turned the scale in their favour. In 1272 Pogesania was subjugated again. To secure communication with Pomezania and Kulmland, and the thoroughfare from the Vistula through the Nogat to the Haf, the order began the erection of the castle of Marienburg in 1274, on the heights above the right bank of the Nogat. But another decade was to pass before the subjugation was completed, under the landmaster Mangold for Sternberg. The nature of the contest had almost depopulated the land. Most of the remaining people retreated to the impenetrable forests and swamps. Still fewer nobles made peace with their masters so as to retain their old possessions or receive new ones. The task of the order now consisted in introducing inhabitants into the conquered districts who might lay the basis of a new and higher civilization. This was done in various ways. Some of the German crusaders simply remained and received estates, 
for which they pledged themselves to perform certain military duties. Then, again, other German noblemen stayed on the same footing and formed a sort of provincial nobility. The peasant population had also to be revived through immigration from the west. As a general thing, the order transferred enough land for the founding of a village to an agent or locator. It set the terms on which he was to proceed in dealing out this land to peasants whom he was to attract himself. In return for his labors, the order gave him a manor and made him bailiff of the village. Generally, these villages were ruled by the Code of Kulm. Thus, the wasted land filled up with hundreds of flourishing villages, whose peasants reaped rich harvests. The superfluous grain became an important article of export, most of it being sent to England. But the cities also grew under the careful administration of the order. Besides the oldest towns, Torn and Kulm, many others sprang up in the 13th century and were filled with German craftsmen and merchants, who received quite extensive privileges on the basis of the Code of Kulm. Thus the Teutonic Order had become the lord of the land, and as such had its rights and duties. But it still preserved its old half-military, half-monastic form, only that it naturally changed somewhat. This made necessary a modification of its rule, which was originally the same as that of the Templars, and, though revised, about the middle of the thirteenth century had become unsuited for the conditions under which the order lived. It is the more wonderful, therefore, how, out of the simple organization of the Teutonic order, a system of government was evolved which satisfied the severest demands. The whole body of the knights, henceforth, were the officials who ruled the new colony. The landmaster, the commander-in-chief, the warden of the hospital, the marshal, and the treasurer became the heads of the most important branches of the administration. The whole district was divided into about twenty commanderships. The commander of the respective religious house of the order was the governor of his district, and the knights who belonged to the convent were his officials. Thus a bureaucracy sprang up beyond the Vistula, which was unique in that every ruler was a servant at the same time. This fact made the Commonwealth possible, and explains the brilliant results achieved by the rule of the order. The manner in which the order excluded the interference of the Church in its affairs is also highly characteristic. It not only foiled the attempts of the Archbishop of Riga to bring Prussia under his ecclesiastical rule, but even invaded his proper sphere by its coalition with the Livonian order of the Brothers of the Sword. In the long run, it was not compatible with the interests of the Teutonic Order to have its chief seat in Palestine. In 1302, the Grand Master Gottfried von Hohenlohe had already proposed, at a meeting of the general chapter in Memel, the removal of the residence of the Grand Master of the Order to Prussia. When his proposal was rejected, he voluntarily laid down his office, but was still considered the head of the body by the knights in Germany. In Prussia, Siegfried von Feuchtwangen, Hohenloche's chief opponent, henceforth ruled the Teutonic Order. Disruption was imminent, which gave the Archbishop of Riga another opportunity to attempt the expulsion of the knights from Livonia. Events had shown that Gottfried von Hohenloche had been right. Consequently, in 1309, the Order resolved on the removal of the residence of its Grand Master to Prussia. They selected Marienburg, which had the best possible location. The castle was completed to serve as an official residence. About this time the ducal house of Pomereln became extinct. 
Thereupon, Margrave Valdemar of Brandenburg advanced his hereditary claims to the succession, but the Teutonic order took the part of a Polish pretender against him. It conquered Danzig for its protégé, but fell out with him later, and drove him out of Pomereln. Then it bought out Valdemar's claims, and added this important district on the left bank of the Vistula to its territory. The order now finally ruled the lower course of the river completely, thereby it had direct communication with germany and completely rounded off its state end of history of northern europe to the beginning of the fourteenth century by hans Prutz.